All right, so hey guys, this isn't Tracy. This is actually her best friend, Girdley. And because me and that crazy girl have been through like uh, 10 years of adventures, I thought I'd hit y'all with a disclaimer of sorts. First and lastly, do know that whatever the hell Tracy shares in this podcast comes from her very own treasure chest of magic, logic, and good intentions. She's definitely not a therapist alternative, but she does believe it's inhumane to withhold what feels like gangsta insight. My girl's not for everyone, but she just might be for you. She's beauty in the You're... Hey there, Earthling. You're listening to the She's Beauty and the Beast podcast, season one, episode nine, featuring award-winning yoga instructor, intersectional activist, and author of Everybody Yoga. And we got one more. I don't know why I threw the and in there. Founder of the Underbelly app, Jessamine Stanley. So the first time I met Jessamine was in 2019 at a Michelob Ultra wellness retreat that I hosted in Austin where she spoke with, I'm telling you, all caps passion about diversity and inclusion in the self-care space. And I was just like, bruh, I immediately felt like I could trust this woman to hold it down when it came to representing some of my most important beliefs and to be able to do that no matter who was or wasn't in the room. Plus, the alignment was just on fire since we reconnected um, at the start of my yoga teacher training. So it was just perfect vibes. Much laughter is in this episode. Um, A lot of memorable dialogue about why yoga in the West was initially more embraced by white folks. Why, in her words, self-hatred is such a boring distraction. Uh, What else? Advice for those uncomfortable with the word fat and hella more. I hope you enjoy this combo as much as I did. To kick things off, what um, emotion has been paying you the most visits as of late? Since we're still at the top of the year and I was obsessed with the memory dumps that you were doing to close out as like totally. your finale of journaling for 2019. Mm. I honestly, you know, I I didn't realize how much of a screen I've been putting over myself, like in terms of connecting with people via social media. And I think that for me, this the end of last year was just kind of like releasing all of this shame and like lack of self-respect and all of these emotions that have really been unknowingly weighing me down. And so I think the feeling that I'm feeling most consistently this year is just a lot of freedom and feeling like a lot of just in that way that I I think it's been probably decades since I felt this kind of freedom where it's like, okay, I know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. And that's okay. (laughs) And I can really just do whatever I want, you know, like not just in my career and not just in love and not just in all of these different individual areas, but collectively I can just be free. And that has been really, really, um, really gratifying. Mm. But I mean, I think that like anyone on a day-to-day basis, I, I probably have every emotion that a human being can have, like all over relate all the time, <laughs> consistently, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I, I know a bit too well. Uh, so the freedom, and I'm so happy that you're able to experience this because you share all the emotions on the, the spectrum of feelings, you know? So when you yourself are feeling free, I know that it's around the corner for me. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that so much of our experience is like just trying to fully live into whatever is happening for us. And that as we do that, the, the repercussions are really like what we can take note of. And for me, like knowing that if I can if I can manifest that feeling within myself, then I can reflect. Word up. Amen. Has the freedom been like a remembering? Cause you said you haven't felt it in some decades. Is it okay. So it's, so 
it's the same freedom you've once experienced versus like a new one, a new sense of freedom. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so like, I've been kind of picking away at this in my yoga practice, trying to come back to the child within and trying to allow like all of my movement to come from this like wild being that's just been inside of me since birth. And remembering that like when I was a kid, man, I didn't answer to nobody. I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. But that at some point there was a turn where I was like, oh no, I need to look to this person for, for approval. I need to get the, the best grade on this. I need to do it the way that someone told me that I need to do it. And just sort of allowing that to be not the only voice Amen. in the room has been really, that's really what's transforming me because it's not even something, I really think that it's just always remembering. And I think that with freedom, ultimately, we're really just trying to recognize a freedom that is always inside of us, that, that we forget about because we live in a world that frankly would like for us to believe that we are not free and and does a really good job of creating that environment. Right. You're so right. I think that's why we subconsciously or maybe consciously are forced to grow up really fast, especially when you are a person of color, because that's how we get all of our trauma from living in the physical world longer. <laughs> and then that and then exactly. that can unfortunately be exploited. And as I'm hearing you just talk about freedom, uh, a big piece of it as a sense of reclaiming your inner child, you know, like being another parent to her or him or they or or just, you know, going right into that body. I often I'm so fascinated with children, especially like the younger they are, not in like a fucking weird way that could end up with me being in jail. But just because I'm always <laughs> but solely in the fact that like, wow, kiddo, like you've been in heaven longer than you've been in earth. Like, what do you have to share with me? And then also in the conversations I have with my producer, Amber, beyond that, you you possibly could have just been dead, if that makes sense. Because you're, you're literally, a child is closest to death and life because you don't know where they came from. Like, like a baby could be experiencing like their fifth, um, uh, reincarnation. Yeah, you understand exactly. what I'm saying? Like, like exactly. someone in a in a I yes, like in a past life, there's might there might be a family currently mourning somebody who's like a grown ass person that passed, but then that person is now entered, you know, Come yeah, back the manifestation mm -hmm. of of a fetus. So I'm just like, you were on some type of runway. You were in some type of interim that is so beautiful the way I feel it anyway. And so I just want to know what lessons you carry with you as a conduit. Exactly. I mean, I think that the awareness that we have as, as children, as like at, from infancy, and then the awareness that we have at death are the most aware that we can be. And that everything in between is just working toward that same mm. place. So like, I feel like as much as we, you know, and really, like, we program children to understand things the way that they are in this, like, collective dream that we're having together. And that collective dream is not this ultimate truth that children understand much better. And that they are, they're so willing to just, like, they're willing to fall mm -hmm. down. They're willing to ask awkward questions, to stand in what's uncomfortable, things that, like, as time goes on, we we try to limit the pain that we'll experience, but they don't fear pain because they understand that pain is a part of learning right. and living. And I feel like if if I can remember what it was like before I was afraid of everything, I literally called the parent company for my app, The Underbelly, Fearless, mm -hmm. because I was like, I want to live in that space of I'm not I'm not apologizing to anyone. I'm not uh, worried about what the repercussions could be. Are, are we going to fall down? Of mm -hmm. course. Falling down is how you learn mm -hmm. to stand up. But there's no way to stand strong if you don't give yourself the freedom to Absolutely, fall. man. They both need each other. That's the balance. There's prerequisites to it all. Absolutely. 
I heard you mention a few times that you never would have chosen a life as a yoga teacher. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it comes at such an interesting time because I just started my yoga teacher training. Hey, congratulations. Thank you so much, boo. And it, it was such an intentional choice on my part. And so I want to know what it's like when it's an unintentional choice. How did this, how did this mm. stumbling happen? Well, so <laughs> I just I've told this story a bunch, but I also was just like, the way that you phrased it was so new and fresh that I was like, damn. What did happen, Justin? <laughs> um, so basically, I was in graduate school. I was going through a pretty common time in life. Like if you've been 23, then you felt what I was feeling. I was just at this place of, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I, I was in school for nonprofit arts management. I felt very spiritually disconnected from the work that I was doing. I felt like basically like I was in the wrong movie, mm. essentially. And I um, I had a friend who was obsessed with Bikram yoga at the time. I feel like everybody who, who uh, starts practicing yoga has at least one friend who tried to successfully or unsuccessfully convince them to practice at some point right. in time. And that friend is always like so deeply committed to it that it kind of turns you off. And that's the experience that I have with it where like my friend was so into it and she was like, she was doing Bikram yoga at the time the hot yep. yoga and she was like oh my god you gotta try it it's gonna change your life and I was like I'm not doing that because I'd actually tried it once when I was in high school and just absolutely hated it so I was like I'm not doing it I, it's not for me but she can finally convinced me she got me caught up on a group home so I ended up <laughs> going and I went and, and I loved it it just really it provided something that I didn't realize that I needed, which was an opportunity to step beyond the boundaries that I created for myself. Like, I didn't realize how many things I wasn't doing in my life just because I thought that I wouldn't be the best or that it would like that it was not even worth it to try. And I saw in my yoga practice that what I would do when I would encounter these postures that were just so difficult, like everything about that. I was I was always like the baddest person in class, frequently the only black person. It was a very alienating right. experience. And it definitely seemed like everyone else had practice together beforehand and then come to the <laughs> class like and that I was the only one who missed right. rehearsal. So I was like, none of these postures are coming naturally mm -hmm. to me. And I noticed that when I would get into those situations that I would just quit on myself. I'd be like, no, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. I don't even know why I tried. And I realized pretty quickly that, you know, that's one way to spend $20. The other way is to actually just try to do it and maybe you fall down mm -hmm. that's fine maybe maybe everyone in the room is going to see you fall down and see that that you don't know how to practice the postures right. that's fine just try you already spent twenty dollars mm -hmm. so just try and that just try was totally revolutionary for me i mean like i can't overstate what it meant for me to be like i'm just going to do something and not be worried about the outcome and just just to give myself the challenge of living. And it really translated into every part of my life so that I started to see where a lot of my unhappiness and dissatisfaction and depression was coming from. And it gave me the confidence to leave graduate school. Uh, technically, I'm still on a leave of absence from mm -hmm. grad school. And I, went to, I moved to Durham where I live now. And when I moved to Durham, I didn't have the money to practice in studios. I didn't really have a plan. I was just kind of cutting the purse strings on my old life and trying out something yeah. new. And during that time, a lot of things happened that um, I went into much more detail about it in my book, Everybody Yoga, but it basically sent me into another depression tailspin. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I, again, I couldn't afford to practice in studios. And so I was thinking like, what was I doing before that was making me feel good? Yoga? Okay, I just have to figure out a way to fit that into my life right now. And it literally, my home practice just started with me, with my dad's old Pilates mat, just rolling it out in this one corner of this tiny apartment that I was sharing with my partner. And like, 
I literally would push all of the furniture out and I made blocks out of VHS <laughs> tapes and used a dog strap, a dog a leash as my yoga strap. And I just started practicing a few postures that felt like it, I felt like it was okay to practice them without a teacher or without anyone watching me. And it just became my mm-hmm. medicine. I was just like, I'm just going to take this medicine. And even to this day, I really just think of my practice as yeah. my medicine. And over time, I started documenting my practice on social media because I wanted to track it over time. So that when I look at my, um, when I look at my social media, I really feel like I'm just looking at journals that I've successfully kept for the last mm-hmm. few years. But what what I noticed over time was that it was inspiring other people to start yoga practices of their own and people who had before that thought that yoga was completely out of their reach. And, and I mean, I think that there's, there's a wide spectrum of people that don't feel represented by mainstream yoga culture. And I realized that a lot of those people were asking me to come teach them. And I was just like, you do not need for me to come teach you. Literally, there are thousands of yoga teachers. <laughs> like, I would recommend other teachers, other platforms. Like, you don't need me. And it got to a place where so many people had reached out that I was just like, okay, well, maybe I can figure out a way to go to training. But, but even in going to training, I didn't think that I was going to teach. You know, I was just sort of like, I can just teach these people who have asked me mm-hmm. to teach and then I can all quit. And, but even with that, <clears throat> I didn't have the money to oh, go to yeah, girl. Like as I mentioned before, I'm in debt from a graduate degree that I have not finished. So I was like, how can I afford to throw thousands of dollars at a teacher training? And I was talking to my father about it one day and he has been, extremely anti all of this from day one. Like he was (laughs) pissed when I left graduate school. He was like, when I started posting on social media, I mean, my father does not care about social Mm -hmm. media or the internet. So he was like, when are you going back to grad school? None of this matters. And, and after a while I'd had a fair amount of press attention. And we were talking about it one day, I guess my mom had showed him an article that I was in and he was like, what's going on with this yoga thing? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking about maybe becoming a teacher. And he was like, well, it seems like that's something that you really need to do. I mean, all of this is happening. So, you know, what, when, when are you going to start doing this? And I was like, I can't afford to become a teacher. Like I can't afford to go to training. And he was like, well, how much money does it cost? And I was like, $3,000. And he was like, well, what if we could help you find that money? Would you go then? Because it just really seems like this is something that you need Mm. to do. And I was like, if this guy is saying that I need to do it, then that's the universe. Because I promise you, he did not care at all. And I really think about myself so much as before YTT and after Mm. YTT. Because before my yoga teacher training, I really understood the practice as a a superficial practice. I understood it as like, I go to a yoga class. I do my practice on these certain days of the week. It helps my body. I don't really understand the connection to spirituality, but it does awaken something deeper Mm -hmm. in me. And that's as far as I'm willing to take it. I thought that the way to be a good teacher would be to um, learn as many facts as possible to try and, you know, like to try and regurgitate alignment tips. So I went into my training really thinking that I just needed to memorize a bunch of stuff and that that would make me a good Mm -hmm. teacher. But I realized that the training was really meant to crack my soul open. And I know that's, it's hyperbolic out there. It's accurate. The, The whole experience was, yeah, it was really just like, I needed to be able to look beyond these, again, with the boundaries and the barriers, I needed to be able to look beyond those to see what was going on and to see what is going on inside Mm -hmm. of me. And I realized that why it's so important for truly for everyone to teach yoga in some way or another, because we're not all speaking the same language. And I think that while not everyone speaks the same language that I do, someone might, even just one person might. And if one person can hear the way that I have experienced the practice and be inspired to uh, to be their own teacher and to develop their own practice, then that's reason to teach. And so ever since I left training, in my mind, 
I'm still just trying to reach everyone who has asked me to teach them. I used to maintain a list of everywhere that people have asked for me to teach. Um, but since the list is essentially everywhere in the world, <laughs> at this point, I'm just trying to reach everywhere in the world. And and I can't physically go to each place. You know, like I, I do teach live classes and I do teach online classes, but um, not everyone is going to want to um, go into a yoga studio. And so I write books and, and then not everyone is even interested in talking about yoga. Um, in terms of the physical practice or in terms of meditation. And so being able to use podcasts and, and other storytelling mechanisms to expand the idea of what yoga is, to me, it's just, I'm just trying to reach all those people. And so I feel like when the day comes that I have reached all of those people, then I think I'll move on to whatever the next mission mm. is. But that's that's how I came across. Ooh, I love that. And thank you for taking the scenic route with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find that I often take the scenic route. <laughs> you know, we could go the direct way. Let's go around the river. Oh, well, listen, I love a road trip, so I'm always down for that journey, okay? <laughs> and, same, and same with our listeners. Well, there's a lot that you mentioned. Um, I love that you noted um, initially feeling like you needed to have this and that to do yoga because it can look like a performance. You know, sometimes it feels like you need to be like Lululemoned out from dome to toe. You know what I'm saying? And you need to have like the flyest blocks and this and that, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, um, it all the only requirement is your breath. Like that is it. Exactly. And I think people do exactly. forget like, I mean, I always knew there is a spiritual component simply because I could feel it. I, I also look at movement as a medicine. But now as I am um, a student in this deeper form of training, like learning about the eight limbs of yoga and how it was really about meditation for the longest time before a physical aspect ever came in, into play. Um is humbling and it and it helps me to come to the map more freely because I don't have to worry about what I look like because even if I just sat there and you know savasana for half an hour I'm doing yoga <laughs> exactly exactly and but that practice of just trying to lay prone for like even even two minutes that practice can be impossible for people like we focus on the the idea of a difficult posture like um you know practicing so many vinyasas in a row or or holding a crow pose or you know working toward a scorpion or like whatever whatever fucking difficult thing we think is going to be hard but what's really hard is to just shut up and be quiet and lay still mm -hmm. and i think that many people i can't tell you how many people like are in class dreading that moment and or I always start classes in corpse pose and people will be like they'll you can feel feel them and see them antsy in the moment and that's totally understandable because we live in a world that makes us think that we're supposed to be in motion all the time and that if we're not giving out a certain amount of energy then we're not doing anything worthwhile so that the most worthwhile practice I think for anyone who lives in the material world is to just mm. lay down mm. and be still so like I feel that. And I mean, I think that um, the, so I have so much to say about what you, what you just said, just because I think that the experience of seeing the self is so much, um, it's so much less glamorous and photogenic, I think, than we are led right. to believe. By, by that is so true. So then, okay, as you have become... I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the I word. I'm gonna do it, Jess. And and, and, oh, I, and no. I an icon. I an icon. Oh, nope. God. <laughs> oh no. Oh. Yes, bitch. I just felt like I should warn you. I just felt like I should warn you for a second. <laughs> Good looking at. Good looking at. You know, I got you, sis. But you know, when you when you start out, you're not thinking. Uh, you know, you just shared with us how you um, put your yoga journey on social, um, so you could archive it. You know what I mean? As as a journal, so you are able to keep track of your progress, and then through that, organically, a brand is born. But also. What I find anyway with having personal brands at time is 
you, you get to know your spirit, but you get to know your ego as well. It can be it can be really interesting, especially if, you know, you are um, making like a schedule around your post or sometimes, you know what I mean? That this these this app is mainly about eyeballs. <laughs> so you might be wondering how to how to take a great like photograph of you in a in a posture. You know what I'm saying? But how are you able? How's your how's your ego been <laughs> on this? on this on this this journey i have to tell you i'm literally so i'm working on the follow-up to everybody yoga right now and i have a whole chapter about this experience of the ego and teaching yoga in the digital age because this is something that i think teachers prior to the internet could not have really experienced where it you're encountering this software that if you're going to spread your practice to anyone outside of your house, it's necessary at this point to utilize social media to some degree. Like it's the it's the poster on a lamppost of 2020. So it, it makes sense, but at the same time, it also asks of us the exact opposite of what yoga asks. Yeah. Like it requires that you look outside of yourself instead of looking inside yourself. And I had a big, come to Jesus, call like big conflict inside myself when I had, when I realized like just how far away those two ideas are from mm-hmm. one another. And at that point, I thought about getting rid of all of my social media because by that point I had had, a, I mean, like I'd realized just how many yoga practitioners try to stay off of social media. And I realized how many of my own teachers are anti-social media. And I was just like, what is the point of all of this? Mm. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm contributing to this idea. I feel like I'm diluting wow. yoga by implying that it's only these postures and that, that you have to strive for these arbitrary um kind of these arbitrary ideas of good and bad and and acceptable. And I realized that while there is this shadow side, that in that shadow side, there's a really unique and beautiful opportunity to share what a yoga practice actually looks like. And that it's not always like, I mean, sometimes it is handstands on the beach. Like I would be, <laughs> I would be lying to say that like I've not enjoyed some sunset yoga practices and you know i mean it it is sometimes also picking the right pair of leggings and you know finding the right uh yoga mat or whatever materialistic (laughs) shit is attached to it sometimes it is that but more often than not yoga is having to deal with the big unpleasant questions within Mm. yourself and i think that actually sharing that process with people is a really beautiful and powerful way to share the practice because ultimately i think the only reason to spread the practice is so that we can live in a world where compassion is the first weapon that we move for instead of fear and right now we're living in a fear-driven world and if you can encourage people to like so much of what people put on social media as yoga has very little to do with what yoga actually is. So I feel like there's an opportunity for practitioners to show what the practice really looks like and in that to encourage more people to, to look for compassion instead yes. of fear. So that that has started to motivate my actions more than anything else. But I definitely had a lot like when I because I got on social media before it was I I mean specifically Instagram I got on it before it was really popular and so it's been interesting to see what's happened like now that it's morphed into a space where there's a lot of brand representation and and it's really a lot it's essentially like one big editorial Mm -hmm. is what Instagram is and and I mean that that has its its merits and it has its downsides. And I think that if we can really utilize the merits, then we can do good in a really yeah, big way. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. I'm wondering, and I love when you're saying um, using compassion as um, a weapon of mass construction is, 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 mm-hmm. is I love that. <laughs> is the, is the absolute that. truth. And I started thinking about Bikram, the documentary on 
on mm-hmm. Netflix and how easy because everyone is looking for something to believe in and usually wants it to be tangible, you know what I mean, as a, as a person. And I, as many times as I've heard, you know, people going to Bikram, I've never done um, hot yoga. I've only done like hot vinyasa. But mm-hmm. what can you speak of with us choosing like which wellness leaders to follow? Like what, what should be our right. rubrics or something like that doesn't happen where you have, you know, you know, um, no one man should have all that power to, to quote Kanye in a sense. Right. You better, <laughs> you better quote. Yes. Okay. And uh, just to know a reminder, I'm quoting the old Kanye. Okay, folks. <laughs> no, right. Pre, pre, oh my gosh. We can have a whole other conversation about Kanye pre like 2015 even let's call it I don't know whatever That's, I feel absolutely um, yes I also feel this sentiment <laughs> of um like how do you like how do you pick a teacher how do you pick a lineage when essentially every lineage in yoga has some kind of sketchy history mm. like every lineage in modern yoga anyway you can find Somebody assaulted, somebody sexually assaulted somebody, somebody, there was mind control happening. Like there's some, there's always something sketchy and it's because we shouldn't follow people. (laughs) I think people are problematic (laughs) and people are power hungry by nature. And, and we're all on our own individual journeys. And when I look at someone like Bikram is such a great example. And that documentary is so good. And um, ESPN also did a really excellent podcast documentary. Uh, It's one of their 30 for 30s. And it is so thorough where they go, they literally went to India and fact-checked everything that Bikram said about his teacher and how he came to develop the practice that bears his name. Mm-hmm. And they really tracked back to the fact that like, like he said that he came up with it himself. Right. He didn't come up with it himself. Like the sequencing is all, um, has existed for, I mean, yoga is thousands of years old. So it just kind of exist and it's not it's not something that you can really lay claim to so i feel like if we really regardless of the lineages that you choose or the teachers that you follow that you have to for me it's helpful to think like they're people and i can't hinge myself on people i have to hinge myself on myself and that ultimately every teacher that you have is just leading you back to the teacher inside Mm. of yourself so that you can take and you can learn from every single lineage. Every teacher has something to offer. Even people who don't think that they're teaching you yoga have something Mm. to offer. And that if you can stay in that space of like, every human being is fallible. Everyone has the potential to do something awful to someone else. Then you can kind of take, the um the good with the bad but that doesn't mean that we make excuses for people or that we like that we down downgrade the things that they've done based on the emotional connections that we had to the practice ourselves because that uh, there's a lot of what i have a bigger issue with in um kind of problems within lineages is not the actions of the individual person. It's the community around Mm. them. Because the problem with Bikram, I think, is not even him so much as the ridiculous number of people who knew the shit that he was doing and didn't say anything about it and who encouraged the survivors to be silent. And, and who even after they came out, were still like, like we're talking shit about the survivors. And like, I'm like, yo, what does that say about what we're doing as a community? You know, like what does this say about the things that we're trying to hide within ourselves? And I think it just creates a lot of really beautiful space for self-reflection and for yoga, like for actually doing the work. I would definitely say that Bikram is the R. Kelly of yoga, especially when when you bring up the community aspect and all of these people who are very consciously concealing and, and, and supporting in spite of you know what I mean? It's and continue to yeah. support and and can't be you can't convince them otherwise. And I mean, I will say that Bikram yoga it was the first style of yoga that I ever tried, and it's still consistently like if I just 
and look like if I go to a random town, if I'm traveling or whatever, if I'm looking for a class that is invariably the first type that I'm going to look for, because I mean, they call it them. They don't call it the McDonald's of yoga for Mm -hmm. nothing. Like it is literally the same (laughs) everywhere. And I think in the same way that I fuck with Starbucks, like I enjoy having the same thing wherever Mm -hmm. I am, but (laughs) I very much separate the practice from the teacher. And there's a, I think there's an importance to like really exploring what all of the truth brings up. Yeah, that's really interesting because again, going with the, the connection to R. Kelly and how people have such a challenge with listening to his music. Do we listen? Do we boycott? You know what I mean? Because is, is listening to the music in support is going to hot yoga in support, you know, but being able to, exactly. to have that divide, because at the end of the day, like God's DNA is still on these people. <laughs> like, Right, right, like exactly. Whether, whether exactly. it's at the surface or whether it's buried, it, it's still there somehow. You know what I mean? So they they had to co-create something good. Like I like every. I always believe that God um, makes use of everything. So there's there's no one person, and whatever. Maybe someone's gonna really dig up their research. But even if it's a, a, a even if it's a serial killer, <laughs> like I'm, I'm thinking about Joe. You know Joe Goldberg from from you, <laughs> and right, oh, right, right, but, right, right. And oh. what makes him so complicated is he does some things that are good. Like there are some parts that like I could take and and use as a lesson, even if his even if the biggest lesson is just that his life is a cautionary tale. You know what I'm saying? Like God, God will use everything. I'm wondering for yourself because you know. People, especially folks of color, are always looking for safe spaces, right? That's our our number one term um, within wellness, particularly within yoga. Do you think that separation is necessary in wellness? You see a lot of folks who are like, we're doing yoga just for black women or just for this, just for that. Is that something that's good in the temporary or is that something that you think we should do just long term? Because because I feel divided with that. No, totally. And I mean, I just to give fair, uh, fair warning, I'm coming from the mindset of like, I went to a single sex high school. And so I'm very much I don't know if it's because of that experience, because I think there are a lot of people who don't feel this way. But that experience really made me understand the importance of being in just being with people who are just like you and that there's a certain amount of freedom that you can experience in those environments that are really hard to come by otherwise. So I'm definitely coming from that headspace about it. And I feel like it's particularly in American yoga and I categorize American yoga as any yoga that came from practices that were born in America and that that American yoga is really taught and practiced all over the world at this point. But in American yoga, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff that we need to deal with collectively in terms of racism and homophobia and wealth inequity and um, transphobia. And I mean, the list goes on, uh, uh, um, ableism. There, There's so many things that we need to discuss collectively that the American yoga world, which is very much founded in white supremacist mm-hmm. values, does not even want to have a conversation about. So that the yoga spaces that people create that they think are being created in this like kind of homogenous secular like everyone come into the space and feel comfortable and feel chill the spaces do not feel safe and i mean i think there's so many different reasons why someone might not feel safe but you're way more likely to feel safe in a group of people who do who are not creating an environment that wherein you can't be Mm. yourself. And I think that particularly for, I mean, like I can only speak from my minority groups. Like I feel like as a fat person, I feel like it is, 
it's a different experience to be in a room full of only fat identified practitioners. As a black person, it's a completely different experience to be in a room full of practitioners where everyone is black and not POC where everyone is black. And I feel like it's different to, um, it's, it's different to be in a room that is queer, where everyone is, where it's okay to show up in the bot, in your body as you, um, as you know yourself to be and not necessarily how others have been trained mm -hmm. to see you. And I think that to be in a space where people are accepting of all abilities and that is, um, accessible to every human being in every way that the human body can exist, that that experience is going to be really different from being in a space where people expect you to be homogenous and to fit into a box of, of performance. And, and I think that while it's hard to say long-term because what what is the long term mm. i mean like who knows i, I don't know I, mean, I feel like i have a whole philosophical thing yeah. around that but i think that at least in the short term in order for us to facilitate the conversations that need to happen in the collective yoga community i feel like we got to do we need to have some um some small groups yeah. first. You need to you have gotta some, make it bite size yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's something that I think it's really imperative for um, teachers and practitioners who identify as in marginalized bodies to have the confidence to express that and to create and embody those spaces. Because I think that the reason that this hasn't been um, talked about in the past in the yoga world is because it's a lot of white people who don't see it right. as a problem but that doesn't mean that it's not yeah a yeah no that's very true and especially the way you are connecting it to going to a single sex um high school and i did the same thing is so beautiful because i know how that gave that comfort level gave me um a higher sense of identity at an earlier age you know totally. um and so I do I I do see and honor and also join in on these more bite-sized yoga communities. And then I also for myself go to these white spaces because I don't want them to just be white. Like mm -hmm. I at the same token, <laughs> totally. I don't want these white women, you totally. know what I mean, just uh subconsciously thinking that yoga is still just the way they look, what they see in the mirror. And oh, so I'm yeah. like, you know what? I look at it as part of my role. I'm not expecting every single person to do this, but I know my comfort level because I went to an all girl school where it was mainly white girls. That's probably where it comes from, you know? And I'm oh, like, okay, mm -hmm, I, I, mm -hmm. if I am a person that can feel okay in a white homogenous space, then I'm going to go. Right, exactly. I feel the exact same way. Wait, now, now I'm so curious about what school you went to. <laughs> you also went to all girls school. It's a small, a black and all girls school. Word. I went to I went to school in Jersey. I'll that. tell you. I'll tell you after. Her, I don't, I don't want no. I don't okay, want no smoke. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you off the record. No, that's literally. I was <laughs> exactly right. Well, no, I mean, I think that that's right. It's kind of like if you've experienced what it means to be the other in that way, and to be like to be in a space where it's like, okay, so there's nobody here who looks like me. I'm just gonna figure my way through this, and then that helps you see that like we are all actually mm -hmm. the same ultimately, and that and that there's so much there's a there's a great importance in I think in integration and in us like sort of trying to find that balancing point all together and that you really can't solve the problem by um what is it where you are se separatism yeah. like i think that you know it's there's there's two schools of thought where in one camp we're all going to be separate and in the other camp we're all going to be together and i think just like everything that it's always got to be a mix yeah. of the two yeah 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 I'm standing with you on that. Okay. One of your memory dumps, you said 2019 was the year I learned to love my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so since oh, you learned this, totally. then yeah. now you are a bit of a teacher. So just a, a little one-on-one -on, -one on loving thy ass, por favor. <laughs> <laughs> 
look at it a lot. That's like, I think that really, honestly, you can never underestimate the importance of like just gazing upon it and and really like hearing yourself say the negative things about it. And then just accepting those things. Like, stop trying to like, like for me, it's like, don't try to put a Band-Aid on top of like the negative shit that I would say. Just try to hear it and then be like, okay, I'm going to accept it. And then I'm going to move forward because it's not helping. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I can, like, if you're carrying something and it's weighing you down, but you just continue to pretend like it's not there, you're never going to be able to let it go. So like, I feel like for me, it's just, it's the same with my ass as with my belly meat as with my upper arm meat. It's all these things like just gazing upon it lovingly, Mm -hmm. accepting all of the baggage that's there and then releasing what is not serving Mm -hmm. me. And then when you, when you start releasing what doesn't serve, then it's only good stuff. Right, as well. right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Is there, I feel like a lot of people, we're doing a lot of learning in 2020 and beyond because so many different lifestyles, so many different bodies, um, so many different just expressions are now entering the mainstream, which is applaudable, but also late. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And (laughs) a couple months ago, I overheard a conversation. I was um, getting a salad at Sweet Green and I was eavesdropping and it was... I better ear hustle, bro. <laughs> but I, but the, but the conversation was around if, and it was, and it was surrounding Lizzo. <laughs> if it's okay, if it's okay to reference her as fat because she has reclaimed that word and she's comfortable with it, or technically, if if you're not heard, you call her plus size. It kind of, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of like you know our um our feelings and and rules that some of us keep around the word nigga, where if it's like, if it's. I knew it. I knew it's exactly okay. right. Yeah. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. 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 So for anyone who. I think it's. Go ahead. Similar. Yeah. Okay. So I think that it's categorized with that word, but that it's really more like how white people be like, someone was African-American, but then they like, won't say that the person was black. They're like, black is a bad word mm. or something. So the, which really says more about them than just about anyone else. Cause like, if you're black, mm. you're black, you're good. Like you understand that, it, that it's a, it's a racial identity. It's not something that it's not a form of profanity. It's just a description. And I think it's the same way with fat that it's like, if you're fat and you are in a state of trying to accept that about yourself and and are trying to be liberated from the body politics that run our world, then you say fat as much as possible so that you can like really embody it and reclaim it for yourself. And whenever someone is not comfortable using the word fat, it says that they believe that to be a form of profanity and that they think that there's something wrong with that. And so I feel like if you're afraid to call Lizzo fat, then you should probably do inquiry around what, why you feel that way about the word fat, because it is just a description, like how you would call someone black or call them like whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. thing it is, because um, I think that it's been used as an insult for so long and been used in ways that it's been defined in ways that don't actually define it. So like fat is defined as ugly, as stupid, as unhealthy, all these different things. And then when you actually think about it, fat just means Mm. large. It doesn't actually mean any of those other things. So it's not an insult for someone. Like if you're fat, it's not an insult to be called fat because it's just true. It doesn't mean that you can't be healthy or that you can't be pretty or that you can't be smart. So that if someone says that you're, they're calling you fat and they mean it as an insult, that's a very interesting thing to learn about. Yeah. That person, to me. <laughs> I love the way you put <laughs> you know? that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so then are we in a place? Hmm. 
Because we're celebrating, especially fat. Well, first of all, I don't even think we're celebrating fat men. That that's a whole other thing. Totally, yeah. It's it's only fat women, which is interesting because it just shows how we are obsessed with the female body, like Mm -hmm. uh, obsessed with with figuring out how to look at it through the lens of of sexiness, right? Trying to figure out how. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but is it? Doesn't it mean that there's still progress to be made if we are celebrating a larger side instead of normalizing? Hmm. Does that make sense? I think that there's, no, it makes perfect sense. I think that there's, I, I don't really feel like we've come that far. So that's, that's the, my jumping <laughs> off points that I'm like, I feel like we have a ways to go here. Mm-hmm. But I do think that if we're just like glorifying, because it really just kind of comes in, it turns into like a circus sideshow where you're like, oh, look at that amazing. That's how I've always felt about like some of the headlines about me that there'll be like, Fat yogi breaks boundaries. And I'm just like, it could also say fat person lived their life happily without shame. And like, it's less exciting, but it's more accurate. And like, I think that we glorify it because it just seems so beyond comprehension. Like, how could you find a way to not hate yourself? And I think that that is absolutely proof that we have quite a ways to go. But I also think that there's a benefit to the visibility, like just having more people who, not just fat body people, but anyone who looks different, who um, identifies as beyond and or, you know, more than mainstream. I think that that is crucial. So People are going to be confused about it. I say that's fine. The bigger picture, I think, is uh, much brighter. Literally. <laughs> literally. 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 <laughs> Double entendres up in this bitch. Yes, yes, yes. You know, you try to live in them. You try to live in them. Mm-hmm. Who needs a single meaning? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, uh, I do. I do. Another quote I want to hit you with coming from yourself. Trying to look at myself smoking weed as much as possible so I could stop making myself feel guilty about it. I'm tired of feeling guilty about something that makes my life better. What's the story about the guilt and what's the story about the better? Oh, man. So I realized that the real problem with cannabis and the conversation around it is nothing to do with legalization. It's not, it's not like how many states can we get to get medical or recreational? It's not about a product or, or trying to make CBD different from cannabis, different from marijuana. It's not about any of that. It's about the number of people that use this plant to live a better life who are not able to talk about it openly. Even in green states, you see this stigma prevail where people feel like they feel like they can't even talk about it. <laughs> like, and I mean, for good reason, because for a lot of people, they're negative repercussions, even in places where it's legal. And I realized that all of that, the linchpin holding every single inch of that together is us being silent and not talking about it. And it made me feel really guilty that I am so selfish in my own practice of cannabis use and so concerned about the immediate negative repercussions for me that I'm not able to do this really necessary social justice work. And I think that in accepting that there's, you know, if there's an unjust law that I have to push up against it, that, I mean, I talked about freedom at the top of this, like that has been a source of insane freedom for me to just be like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to live in fear of, the negative repercussions of laws that are stupid and that don't represent the beliefs of the people who live in this country and that are not in the best interest of our economic health or our um, physical health as a people. And yeah, I mean, I just think that normalization of the culture and destigmatization are the most important things that we can do as, um, as mm-hmm. users. 
Absolutely agree. I think another way you have expressed your freedom or found your freedom is um, in owning being queer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which one has been easier to embrace, being a human who happens to be queer <laughs> or being a human who happens mm-hmm. to be fat? Man, way easier to accept uh, queer identity in the mainstream than it is to accept fat mm-hmm. identity. I think that being uh, identifying as fat, I mean, you see it even with people who call themselves like body positive influencers. They only want to be called curvy or plus size. Right. They don't want to be called fat. You yeah. know, like, I feel like there's, there's still this really intense stigma that it's, I mean, it's it's understandable why people are afraid. Like, I don't want to give the impression that I'm like, everyone should just walk on the wild side. I mean, I get why people don't. But I think that for me, it's just really important to just own it all because I I, I don't have that much time on this planet. You yep. know what I mean? Like, I don't really have time to be out here pressed about things that don't matter <laughs> and that 10 years from now, I'm going to be like, what was I upset about? What was I pressed about? You know, like, let's Mm -hmm. not do that. But I do think that, I mean, I think queer identity is probably easier because frankly, the way that we have normalized queer culture in America, at least, is entirely within the white gaze. So I feel like it's still in this space of like, like, these traditional values are being used as the metric for how we can accept it. And that Bad acceptance is really so much of that comes down to um, to the work of black femmes and of people of people of color in mm-hmm. general. And I just think that all of those things combined mean that it is it's a lot easier to come out as queer than it is to come mm-hmm. out as fat. What does it mean, Jess? Like when you had mentioned before on one of your posts how you were identifying as queer before straight people use it as an identity like like what does a straight person being queer even mean <laughs> oh my gosh because everyone is so do you remember okay first of all so i've i've been i've been out long enough to remember the time before everyone was excited about pride like pride used to be something especially like living in the south where it, there was a time where it was truly in my lifetime in my out time where it's not necessarily safe out of pride so like I remember what it was like before it was you know every brand has some kind of June pride campaign and this last pride month this June 2019 I was blown away by the number of brands that were like we're down with the gays and I mean I was here for it but I was also like Okay, but so in that light, now everyone, there's people popping about the woodwork. I'm queer this, queer that, blah, blah, blah. And now it's like kind of a trendy thing to be like, like, yeah, I, I think that people use queer as, it's like they're saying that they're open. <clears throat> they're open in life, they're free in oh, life. Okay. And I mean, the reality is, frankly, I kind of think everybody's queer. So I'm like, I feel you. I've got you. But I also, uh, my friends and I talk about (laughs) queer without paperwork. (laughs) We're like, okay, but I need some receipts. (laughs) Can I see? I would like to know you're queer receipt. Because I'm not saying that you're not. I believe everyone is. But I need some confirmation. Right. Exactly. Because y'all just want a damn hashtag so that you can get more optics. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I you know? hear you. Yeah, I'm like, I feel you. I got There's a lot of glitter, but paperwork, please. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, speaking of paperwork, mm-hmm. work, this reminds me of books. And you have one of the best tattoos. Those five books? Mm. Yo, girl, I really think I'm gonna have well, to. I'm gonna you. have to jack that. Although I, I also feel, I Do also it. feel a type of way that I only know one of the books <laughs> that you have. To. Hell yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. You know what I mean? Which book is it? Cage that, Bird that's, Things. That's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's the only one you need. No, Don't worry but about it. everything else is good. Well, I do want to know because of how. Even though this is our second time speaking from, you know, when I first learned about your work um, deeper when we were at the Michelob Ultra event, which was so damn good. It was really fucking good. So good. Um, It was like really (laughs) good. And the second time, 
I love you, girl. I do. I really, really feel it. And so because of that love, I'm always interested, always am going to be interested in what informs you as a human and as a spirit. So that's why I'm my curiosity, it's um it's sparking when I look at these tattoos. I'd love for you to speak on these books, like what they have taught you yeah, a little totally. bit. Totally. I mean, let me just like start off at the top. The first book is Ruby Fruit Jungle and um, is written by Rita Mae Brown and talking about queer identity and queer receipts. And when I when I first came out in high school, um, I don't remember if I read Ruby Fruit Jungle and I think I read it in college, but there are a lot of books and films that were a really big part of my coming out. And that book is, it's a story of someone's coming out in the South and it just really resonated for me a lot. And on that same tip, the second book is called Persepolis and it's by Jeffrey Eugenides. It's probably my fav most favorite book of all time. And it tells, a very large epic saga of a Greek American family from when they were in Greece at the turn of the 20th century and then charts them through the 20th century. And it just really, I think it would resonate for anyone who is curious about their um, their ancestral identity and, and finding a call to a land where perhaps your parents and maybe your parents' parents did not grow up, but that you still feel a connection mm -hmm. to. And my third book is The Deathly Hollows. It's the last Harry Potter book. It's Harry Potter and the ah. Deathly Hollows. <laughs> Harry Potter is probably the, I mean, I there's really no word. I'm a Harry Potter mm -hmm. person. Like I, I'm the person who's at, the, who was at the release parties for the books. Like I, I know everything I'm at trivia oh, night. Wow. I got all the things. So that's my favorite Harry Potter mm -hmm. book. And then, um, uh, Middlesex. Middlesex. Oh no. Persepolis. I got, I got confused. Middlesex is what I was talking about before. Persepolis is the story of a young girl growing up during the Iranian revolution. And it's a graphic novel and it's just a really beautifully written um, novel. And it's just the, the intimacy and the vulnerability. And I think that as a creator, really trying to embody my most authentic vulnerable self is really what, um, what I'm ever trying to do. And Persepolis really, affected the way that I see the world and the way that I see creating. Mm. And then I know why the cage bird sings. I mean, my Angelou is, there's no words for the yeah. impact that she's had on my life. And like, I um, I actually had the chance to meet her when I was very young. And there's like, picked, like literally on a whim, like I was hanging out in the backyard of a, a place that was next door to a place where she was doing some events. I can't even remember. It was so long ago. And I ended up like my friend and I just like went into the backyard and got to hang out with them. And, and at the time I was just like, you know, it's she auntie, you know what I mean? But like, as time has gone on and I'm just like, wow, that was somebody that I understood to be like a real person. You know what I mean? Like not, not like a mythical human being. And then to understand the impact that she's had um, just in ev in so many different corners of letters and humanities. And then to read this first book of hers that is just really, it carries for me the importance of living your truth even when you don't know what's coming mm. next. Mm. I think that there's so much in our worlds where we're like, we need to chart it out or figure it out ahead of time. And, and so much of that book is just like, well, you know, a bunch of bad shit happened and I didn't know where I was going. And then at the end, I didn't really know where right. I was going, but here we are now. And it just, it just really resonates for me. And books were the first thing that I ever really loved, like really, where that really felt like a refuge for me. And, and I didn't grow up in a family where there was a lot of money to be like in bookstores. So going to the library was a huge deal to me and being able to fall into stories 
to this day is my like one of my biggest forms of catharsis. So to be able to carry those books around with me on my physical body, it, it means a lot to me. Mm, yeah, I feel you on all of that. And it's beautiful because if not right in this very moment, um, definitely tomorrow or in the nearby future, there's probably going to be somebody who's speaking about you and your book in this exact way. So it's really beautiful mm. when you get to part participate in the both the experience of reader right. and writer, right. you know, I, and kind of and, and complete that cipher. Right. It's kind of it's hard for me to engage with how anyone else perceives what I create. Because I feel like when I do, I get so hung up on how other people feel about it that I can't actually embody the truth. <laughs> like I can't, it becomes, there's like a block in between. And so I'm just kind of like, I feel like I just want to create without anyone else on my shoulder and just be like, I'm just doing my thing. You know what I mean? Just doing my thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. Jess, thank you so much, man. I deeply appreciate you, my girl. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for making the time to speak with me. I'm excited genuinely for everything that has already manifested and that's also en route. So just keep doing you, for real. Yo, hard time. Boom, shakalaka, boom. Yup, a gangster indeed, Miss Jessamine is. If her spirit resonated with you, be sure to check out her own podcast, Dear Jessamine, where she gives advice on all things polyamory, baby, during her first season. Yeah, yo, it is way deeper than just yoga. But of course, yoga is always involved. So be sure to follow her on Instagram at my name is Jessamine. And that's Jessamine spelled J-E-S-S-A-M-Y-N. Yeah, Hamas mama got real fancy with it i love it so again it's my name is jessamine on instagram jessamine spelled j-e-s-s-a-m-y-n and download her international app underbelly which is basically her virtual yoga studio that's a home for all our fellow wellness misfits anyone who may feel displaced discouraged or overlooked due to a lack of diversity in the health and fitness community underbelly is for you to check out and all of that will be in the show notes as well boom if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your people share it on social media and tag me i'm at it's tracy g i t s t r a c y g everywhere thank you so much for listening thank you so much for supporting i don't take any of that shit lightly in the slightest it's just appreciation overload over here Till next time, continue taking good care of yourself, my love. <laughs>